Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on, man? Oh, man, just getting ready to do my thing, travel around the world. I'm excited. I know you are. Are you excited because I'm going to do all the hard work? Yeah, you have to leave. You're going to the future. Yeah, I am. 13 hours in the future. I am going to call you and let you know the outcome to all the popular sporting events. Now, speaking of work and art, we got someone with us today that knows all about it, a serial entrepreneur that I believe you've known for quite a while. You want to do the intro, my friend? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mr. Russell and Mark is here, and my first professional software development job, I worked for him. Hi, Russ. It's true. It's true, like 16 years ago or something like that, a long time ago. And you know, you just made me old. Well, thanks for having me here, though, guys. I I do appreciate it. And also, I appreciate you being old because Mr. Watson (laughs) likes to mess with me and tell me how old I am. I say, look, man, I'm not old. I'm gold. (laughs) Now, um, I didn't realize we were going to start with the insults. I thought we'd work our way up to that. But that's fine. All right. Here on Startup Hustle, we really bear it all right away. Like if there's anything we can do to demean each other, our guests or their business, we just get right (laughs) into it. Let's get after it. Yeah. So, well, you know. We were before I hit record. We were talking about a lot of stuff. Uh, Russ, you're clearly a serial entrepreneur. You've done a lot of different things. Um, you and Terminally I totally unemployable. I think would be the more apropos label, but I, that's fine. There's no. I would be a terrible employee. I'm unemployable, and uh, I'm. I've been trying to get fired actually. So if you can give me some advice on how I can get fired, that'd be great. What do you think, Matt? You're fired. Ah, sweet. All right, we can have a good time. You work for free, though, so it's good. They keep you around. You know, for those of you that have kept up with my stuff um, or read Million Dollar Bedroom, you know that for me that started with event ticketing. And, you know, that's, Russ, that's something you and I have in common. Yeah. Uh, I I still own a a ticket business. I'm sorry. Me too. Yeah, I get it. We're going to be in a support group, right? We have we have one, and we'll tell you about that as the episode goes on. It's for startup founders. We call it Tears and Beers. It's a safe place for you to just cry or get wasted or get wasted and cry. Um, so my, my question for you, Russ, though, um, were you an entrepreneur before that? I was. So uh, where did you start out your entrepreneurial journey? Wow. Okay. Uh, we'd have to go back to – I was – eight years old and was in the third grade and my favorite band was kiss at the time wanted to, you are old. I am old. (laughs) More evidence of, of that. So I'm eight years old. I go to my parents. I say, Hey, my favorite band's coming to town. I want to go. And my mom's response was, I don't, and you're not going without me. So you have to figure out how to pay for two tickets. So I, uh, said, okay, well, I'm eight years old. I don't think I'm going to be able to get a job anywhere. So I'm thinking about that, and I look in the backyard, and we've got all these apple trees. And I'm like, oh, people buy apples. So went and filled up uh, grocery bags with apples and went door-to-door selling them. That's where I learned merchandising, because if you put the good-looking apples on top. Anyway, sold enough apples to afford a couple of KISS tickets, and that was kind of my first first foyer into entrepreneurial activity. So fast forward. It started with event tickets. Hang on. I got to say this though. Like you're, you're my brother from another mother. Cause for me as an entrepreneur, it started like at like five or six, my parents have a house on in Leewood South on the golf course. And there's a pond on the hole that they live on. And we used to fish golf balls out of it and, and sell them. also do a lot of merchandising. We had these little like plastic crates. We pull them up there in the wagon, you know, to wash them. We make 12 bucks in a day. Oh yeah. We'd use the ball machine up there. We'd shine those <laughs> things up. And you know, that was like 12 bucks in a day. You can't buy two kiss tickets for $12. Can you? Maybe I then think you could maybe, maybe back then <laughs> 1970. Or whatever that was. So. Okay, you are old. Yeah, thanks. It's Appreciate okay. that. You we look, established you, that clearly. You, we need but to... Ross, you look great. So that's what matters. Let's get back into this story. So, okay. So 
you fast forward from there. Uh, well, there was a couple of in high school painted houses with uh, the guy who runs Ticket Solutions today, as a matter of fact. Uh, so that was one stop, and then got to college. College was a was a good time. Let's see, my sophomore year, longest six years of my life, uh, dropped out <laughs> three different times. Done with, it with ideas that I thought I could change the world. So had several failed businesses in college. So I think the most valuable thing I learned in college and from those experiences was failure is rarely fatal. So, man, that's some advice listeners. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. You know, I tell people around me all the time, I've had a few employees that have, have left me and gone off and started their own thing. And I tell employees all the time, uh, I think one of the biggest things that people don't do, well, one of the things that people need to get past is they don't chase their own dreams, right? Everybody's got dreams and people just are afraid of the the failure part of those dreams. And Matt can attest, uh, working for me is no fun. I mean, I've heard it's gotten a lot easier. I I've absolutely learned. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, at the time though, uh, I was foolish. I, you, you guys were my first set of developers, right? I mean, I had, I didn't know what, how to motivate technical people mm-hmm. and I figured it out. It I, wasn't I money. Give you just some advice on that. No, no. I, I know there are really important uh, benefits. It's long hours, low pay and hard work. Yeah. But <laughs> are those ben- are those benefits of working with you? <laughs> no, okay. not anymore. They probably were when Matt was. But you know, at the time, I thought, oh well, we'll just we'll dangle money out there, and it wasn't money. I mean, that wasn't what motivated you guys. Just wanted to work on cool. We just want to build cool shit. Yeah, I think, and that's that took me years today. to figure out. Yeah. So that's we we probably hear that more than anything else. Like at full scale. When we're hiring people, they just want to work on stuff they're interested in. They want to do things that are engaging. And it's like something it's just, challenging. It's just challenging and something intellectual. They want to feel like they're, but I think that's true in life. Like if you don't feel like your life in general is moving forward, you're not it's hard to really taste the flavor in life. And and you know, no matter how hard you're working or what you're doing, if you feel like you're getting what you want. It, it's a bulletproof kind of thing. You can get through a lot of crap and a lot of BS and a lot of failure yeah. and a lot of different stuff if you feel like you're at least making progress. So, all right. And, you know, talking about tickets is boring. Yeah, um, let's not do that. Yeah, I don't, you know, just, well, you know. So you, well, well, first of all, though, you you had some interesting successes and failures in college. You okay, so right? no, no, then how did, no how did successes, you go from there? No, no success. success in college at all, right? So I'm, I keep thinking that I've, found the recipe and it keeps failing. So, you know, going back to, uh, kind of, I've, you know, go all the way back to the kiss tickets, right? I mean, there was this, uh, problem I had and I needed to view it through the lens of opportunity. So that became kind of thematic throughout my life. And so now it's the early nineties, I'm graduating from college and I'm still painting, painting houses as my side hustle. And uh, that's when I got into the ticket business. Marty Schottenheimer, Joe Montana, God, I'm old. And Marcus Allen all kind of came to Kansas City around the same time and uh, wanted tickets and and quickly realized that, man, it's, it's hard to get tickets and I'm not the only one with this problem. So, you know, I, I see this problem and I say, okay, well, let's go see if we can figure this out. I camped out for Chiefs tickets. Uh, bought 80 of them, bought a USA Today as I was leaving the stadium and because I'd seen ticket broker ads in there and started, uh, called all those brokers, sold all those tickets and said, I might be able to make a living doing this. You're trying to create a ticket solution. That's, wow. That's that, probably worth that. That's the same way it happened for me. I wasn't planning on, I the very first chapter of Million Dollar Bedrooms called My Accidental Business. I was yeah. uh it was when Ticketmaster and Live Nation were still competitors and Live Nation launched their ticketing system and it was a total train wreck. I was trying to buy fish tickets when they came back from hiatus and it was just a total shit show. And uh, I couldn't get the tickets in Indianapolis that I wanted and I bought some that were on sale at uh, uh, up in uh, Alpine Valley. The next day I sold them on eBay, I made a couple hundred bucks. And like you said, that lens of opportunity. I too 
had spent a lot of time kind of searching, you know, I had a great job, but I just quit. I hated it. I just was traveling a lot. I loved the company, hated the travel, went back to school at 31. I've been to five colleges and now I'm a junior. So I'm getting there. Um, but like you said, that lens of opportunity, the light bulb popped. I was like, huh, I might be able to do something with this. And next year, you know, then you're selling a million, five million, six million. You're like, wow, this is uh, something. So I think, so Russ, you created a, bit, a great business out of that. Um, but I think what always impressed me the most was the things that then spun out of it. Yeah. And actually that's where I came into the story, right? So yeah. you, you decided to create a, a little software program to track your inventory and who your customers were and do some different things. And that started to grow a little bit, right? And you decided to try and sell that to some of your friends that were also in the business. Yeah. Started basically. bringing on partners. Uh, one and that's how I capital. got hired. Yeah, ex exactly. And I mean, you know, so it started as inventory management and then, well, you've got to have a CRM. And it really goes back to the problem that I had was the only software for that industry at the time was this DOS-based system. And I'd already discovered a mouse. And I was like, wow, <laughs> why doesn't anybody, why hasn't anybody done any technology? And I was foolish enough to think that, that I could start a technology, a software company. And thank God I found really smart people. You did. And you. You too. did. I was going to say, did that happen after Matt or before? <laughs> No, well, you did. Uh, Tom Walls. Tom Walls. Um, yeah. oh, wow. Jeff Julian. Yep, I mean, yep. Jake Dubin. Yeah, Jake's still there. Really. Jeff really Julian's been on our guys. podcast. Yeah. Jeff's actually been on the podcast a couple times. Yeah. Now, Matt, were you the one that wrote the the first real-time ticketing exchange on a flight from from coast to coast? Was that Probably, you? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it was either that or I, I, when we were in Vegas, I was re, 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 uh, <laughs> we, were, we were talking about this, how – we would go out there to the events and uh, I, mean, I always remember Jeff Julian and I like rented a suite and we were like both 19 years old when we worked for you, like lounging around and like the suite at the MGM wearing our robes, like we writing code it, at, <laughs> at two in the morning, drinking Mountain Dew or whatever. We were living the dream. Like we were just doing cool shit. Like we mentioned earlier, like that's what motivated us. And so that was fun to, yep. we were going all over the country, um, setting up new customers with the software product and it was fun. Yeah, that's cool. I, you know, it, it's weird. I'm I'm really enjoying this episode so far. That I feel very paralleled with you because I had I've got too many unsailed ships in my harbor. They were just these weird ideas that were they were really just being fired out by the ticket company today. I get yeah. having all these ideas. I'm like, shit, this isn't a good idea. Like, so the, this yeah. um, this ticket technology business was one of the businesses that kind of spun out from this. Uh, what happened with that? Do you want to tell the rest of that story? What, what that the part rest of, of the ticket technology story? So, uh, started in 99. When did that, when did you come on? I was probably 2000? 2001 or 2000. Right. Yeah. So grew it up to, I think at our, at our peak, we had 500 customers and, uh, ultimately sold that business to eBay as they were, as they were, uh, buying what was liquid seats and became StubHub. When, they when did they do that? That was 2007, 2008. Okay. But that's when they purchased your stuff. Yeah, they purchased okay. Ticket Technology from, uh, you know, at the time, by the time we sold it, we brought in, I think, 40 other ticket brokers as partners in the business. So also learned that I was I was better at, at being a uh, sole proprietor than I was being one of many equals yeah. in, a, in the business. But so before, you know, before we sold that, that was the end of the ticket technology story. But before we sold that, we also decided we wanted to go into the event planning business and, uh, you know, try to overlay some technology on top of event planning. We thought we could disrupt that industry and proceeded. To, that was the first time I lost a million dollars. So, again, proving my point that uh, failure is not fatal. Uh, had a couple other failed startups that you know were born out of out of the ticket business or out of something else that I was doing or some problem that I saw. Uh, and then Veriship, which is where I focus most of my efforts today, was was born you know out of ticket brokers at the time. And this is before electronic ticketing. We relied completely on FedEx and UPS to... There were stacks and stacks of them every day going out the door. But yeah. before we go forward with this, I actually want to back up because you just, Excellent. you talk about, you talk about, you said that was the first time I lost a million dollars. Now, 
Um, you know, I, I now can we edit that part because I'm not sure my wife still knows about the. <laughs> I, I just buried that in expenses over. I, I built well. I added zeros. It just sounds better when it's a. You know, it was the first time you lost a hundred dollars. It was first time. Um, you know, for me personally, I've always felt that I'm good at making money, and because of that, it's made me braver. I've been. I felt better about taking a chance. I've always. I've never. I've never feared being broke. Meaning like, I know that I, at the worst case scenario, I'm a great salesperson or whatever. Um, does, is that, did that factor, does that go in your thought process too? You know, cause no one wants to lose money. No one wants to see things not go well or take longer, be overly expensive. I think a lot of the people that listen to, to startup hustle are trying to figure out, you know, they, they, I hear this excuse a lot. It's not the right time. The right time's never coming. It's never going to happen, but, and then it's also that fear of losing money. Um, so how did you handle that? Like, how, how did you bounce back? How did you go into that? Like, what's your approach when you want to start something new or do something different? So uh, I'd say a couple of things about that. One, never gone into a business with uh, the idea of making money. You know, the money ultimately becomes the, the profit becomes the scoreboard, if you will, yep. as to how successful yep. you're your businesses, but that's not the goal, right? I mean, so the other, the other kind of thread that I would, I would go to there is, you know, in the early nineties, actually the same year that I started the ticket business, I got married and, you know, realized at that point that, okay, these, these chances that I'm taking now don't just affect me, right? There were early on, it's just you and you can, you can fail, you can lose everything and go start over. You can, uh, make enough money to get the lights turned back on those things. But, uh, then my wife tricked me into to having kids <laughs> <laughs> and you start realizing, okay, you know, these, these chances now the, the losses, uh, you know, or the wins are magnified because you've got these other human beings that are somewhat relying upon you. And I was lucky enough to, to, to have a, have a wife that ultimately kind of, you know, backed every dream and every chance I ever took and wasn't very impressed with the successes and wasn't very down on the the failures. But, you know, going back to the going back to the the kind of thought of the fear of of losing money, I mean, it, it's not it's not so much about the fear of losing money. It's the fear of uh, you know, what if this doesn't work? You know, I've got I had employees in these businesses, you know, that you got to find something to do with the, the employees for the businesses that don't work. And, and that always weighed on me more than, than the money was, you know, I, how I, it affected people's lives. You know, in my transition out of tickets and into what we're doing now, like I had a lot, went through a lot of that myself. Um, I never wanted to be the guy that had a million dollars, you know, like that's a past tense term. And, and, and I, and I felt a lot of that, uh, you know, when I, I didn't have kids. I didn't have wife when I started really started out on my own. And you're right. It's a different feeling. It's a, it's a, you know, I don't want to come home and be like, Hey, uh, well, this is all gone. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was probably more of a motivator or a driver, but, you know, I think in the end, like, you know, you got to have faith in yourself. Like if you don't believe that you're going to win, then, well, you're probably not. And, and, you know, that's, it's tough, man. I think also just kind of being made out of stone, at certain times you have to just like be ready to just have something plow right into you at full speed. And you're like, all right, cool. I'm still here. Yeah. Overconfidence is absolutely, you know, it's, it's much easier to do after you've had some success and yeah. you, you go into the, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. It is irrational exuberance can sometimes, you know, cause I think people will come up with a business idea and then start to put together a business plan and you get that analysis paralysis and, and they get frozen in place where if you don't think through everything, those problems are going to surface. And, you know, once you have inertia in a business, you're going to, you're going to solve them because it's a necessity versus trying to solve them before you start. Yeah. Business, business and planning aren't linear like they want to teach you in school. Like right. it's not A to B to C to D to E to F to G. It's, there's just 8 million different variables and paths. And, you know, it's just, it's really infinite. So, and I've know, heard Matt talk about his, uh, it's ADD. What do you refer to? Entrepreneurial. It yeah. Entrepreneurial ADD. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I, I've heard a couple, heard you talk about that on a couple of podcasts and, and I, th I think that your solution to that 
is is not only uh, simple, but it's elegant at the same time in that you've surrounded yourself with people who can take those problems that you start to solve and push them across the finish line. So it's that that's something else that's been thematic in my life is surrounding myself with with people who are great at what they do, present company included. You know, I couldn't have written any of that code and and you were able to to solve real-time integration of of inventory when nobody else in the country was doing that. Did you ever have a problem with like with with entrepreneurial with ADD you, no. you get <laughs> with entrepreneurial ADD you can try you know you're trying to do too much a lot of times. Like did you ever go through a point or a process where you like at what did you immediately hire help when you were first starting or were you the guy that's trying to do nine different things and it's like no one can do this as well as me. Yeah, no. I mean you know, the, the whole idea of a sole proprietorship is it's you by yourself and it gives you this baseline across the entire operation and the entire, you know, sphere of what you're trying to accomplish. And then you go, but recognizing and having the, the ability to recognize in yourself, Hey, I'm not good at finance. I've got to find somebody great at finance. I'm not, I'm not a technology person per se. It's also about what you don't want to do. Not that you might be good well, you at it, but you still enough. might not want it. Yeah, you it. get lucky enough if you if you have some success to to push those things you don't want to do onto other people, so yep. you can focus on the things that uh, that you're passionate about. And I didn't want to derail things. I just felt there were we were going to have some insight there, and I think that was that was great stuff. Um, so you, you back to back to your timeline and your story here, and tell us about how Veriship came about and like what you do and where that's at. And if you guys want to check it out while you're listening, Veriship dot com v e r i s h i p dot com. Okay, thanks for that plug. Sure, shameless. We'll, we will invoice you for that later. Sweet. So. Uh, you know, you go back to that ticket business I had and I'm scaling it in the nineties and all of my customer care pain is born out of the carriers, uh, not delivering the pieces of cardboard when they said they would. And I need my tickets by Saturday afternoon so I can go to the event. If I don't get my tickets, I'm going to call you and threaten to kill you. Some of that. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah, that happens. So, uh, you know, there's the, there's the first pain I have with the, the carrier and, the other part is I'm scaling is I know I'm not efficient. I know I'm not efficient in, in how I'm selecting service types and, you know, in our operations and I can't get the carrier to, to help with the, solve those problems. And why wouldn't they help? Because my inefficiency was leading to their profitability, right? I mean, if I was making bad selections on service types, uh, you know, in terms of I'm going to send this so that it gets there at 10 AM tomorrow versus the, the 3 PM, then they make more money. So that's kind of in the back of my mind as I go into the 2000s. And then I'm as we start scaling up that software company and getting more and more customers, we rolled up all of the accounts under one umbrella account. And I go to the carrier and say, hey, look, you know, I'm shipping under a contract that was when I was shipping $200,000 a year. Now I'm, the contract's $4 million a year. And I'm paying the same rates. I mean, there should be some economies of scale. And the carrier comes back to me with a proposal that allegedly would save me $400,000. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of data driven in my decision. So give me the underlying data to how, how you arrived at this would result in $400,000 in savings. And they, they put together a couple of really nice PowerPoint slides that had no data. And so I paid a couple of people to go sit in a room and go through all of my past uh, invoices and, and uh, re-rate them against this new proposal, and the results are that 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 new contract is going to save me two hundred thousand dollars. So now I'm upset with the the carrier again. Uh, still have the problems, and I'm starting to this. You know, the lights are starting to come on around this opportunity, and I get approached by this mom and pop company in uh, Colorado. Uh, who literally a husband and wife who offered to audit my FedEx bill. And they were, this is after you left Matt, but they're coming in once a month and we had one room where all of our engineers sat mm -hmm. and, you know, they did nothing but automate workflow all day. And they sat in the, at a table in this room and they'd go through this paper invoice from FedEx and auditing is just painful to watch. And I was going to say that sounds terrible. It, so yeah. now I'm, I'm watching these, this, husband and wife do this for about six months 
it's run rating at about six figures uh, at the end of that six months. And I said, there's got to be a more, uh, there's got to be a better way to do this. So Jake Dubin, uh, who was the, you know, kind of the CTO of the, the software company at the time, I said, hey, I'm going to take two of our developers and go start a new company. And he said, okay, well, just don't pick these two. And I said, okay. So I took those two and put them in the next suite over. <laughs> and six months later, had a prototype for the Veriship software. And that was kind of the birth of, of Veriship. And so the, the whole goal of Veriship is to help people audit their shipping bills, yeah, figure out how they're getting overbilled, how to optimize it, all yes. that sort of stuff, right? Yes. So, now, now, what year did Veriship start? 2006. So you, so since then, up until now, you've gone through a massive renaissance. Like people were buy, actually buying things in, at retail then. Right. So this whole e-commerce thing, we think it might have some legs. I yeah. mean, I'm not willing to. I still think computers are a fad, but we'll see. Yeah. I'm giving it time. Well, so that to that point, like that industry, part of that has changed dramatically over the last, you know, 12 years or whatever. Yeah, well, Parcel uh, parcel is certainly scaled and grown. And we really focused the first six years on just the audit piece. We just wanted to be great at audit software. And I think the first year we audited $3 million. And uh, seven years later, we were doing three quarters of a billion dollars of invoices that we were auditing. Wow. So does it also, so does this, does your software and your, and does Veriship also like, rather than saying, Hey, you should be getting a discount. Does it also say, Hey, it didn't make that up, make it, make it there on time and help you get some money back. Yeah. So the, the whole premise of the software is to help hold the carriers accountable, the audit piece anyway, hold the carriers accountable to the promises that they make to their customers that when they don't make them, they don't tell you. So yeah. we help you secure those refunds for any package that's late for any address correction that's invalid for, for any residential delivery that they charge you an extra $3 and 75 cents for, but is really delivered to your office. Those kinds of mistakes the carriers are making. I mean, and what, 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 great what percentage are flawed? Yeah. I was going to say they're great at what they do. I mean, the carriers uh, are 99% of the time they're accurate. One percent of all packet of all shipments—that's a massive number. So, U.S. between FedEx and UPS, it's a hundred billion dollars. We're auditing about two billion dollars a year, so we're securing about twenty million a year in refunds for our customers. And your guys's model is just taking like a share of the money they save, right? Yeah, so it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, and in two thousand and eight, you guys are young, so you probably don't even remember two thousand. Not true, but there was. There Somewhat was this old. Lehman Brothers thing, and the and the the market kind of yeah. uh, took a little bit of a hit. And uh, in 2008, when you went to a CFO and you said, "I'm going to give you a no risk way to to put money back into your account," they all bought it. So that really that you know, which was a you know terrible time for our country, but it was a great time for Veriship because our business model really resonated. And people are trying to save money. But, yeah. But Mr. Watson, that was also a driving factor for you at Venn Solutions, wasn't it? Was. It was. Like, that was you, that 2008 and 2009, like uh, GM and Chrysler go bankrupt, like being an automotive seems like a terrible time. But we were focused on internet sales and internet leads for car dealers. And it was perfect because we would go to them and say, hey, don't spend $25,000 a month to advertise in a newspaper. Pay some of that money to us. Use, you know, save the rest of it. Pay for digital marketing. We were there like at the right time, like and it helped us. They were trying to save money. I talk to people all the time. I, I love saying, you know, saving money is making money. It's the same thing, you know. And, Absolutely. And, and you know, Matt, you're always talking about when it comes to, to software that um, well, a, you got to solve a problem, but you got to create efficiency. You got to drive sales. You got to save money. And it, it sounds like you're doing all of that. Um, that's that's good stuff. Yeah. So so how, how many people are using this now, Russ? We've got uh, three thousand customers. All in the U.S. or are you international too? All U.S. They're they're all U.S. billing based. So we've got international customers, and certainly a lot of businesses are shipping international, and our software uh, overlays that. But uh, do your users trend towards a specific industry or business type? No, this whole again, this whole e-commerce thing seems to be working for everybody. But uh, we just did an analysis, and we we've penetrated eighty six percent of the NAICS codes. And for those that aren't familiar with those codes, 86% of the industries 
in in the U.S. That's impressive. Can can you share? I'm just curious if if you can share. I want to share like who some of your bigger clients are. Uh, would probably rather not share specific names, right, but cool. uh, food subscription businesses, uh, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So do FedEx and UPS hate you? No, you know, do they hate us? Well, or, I mean, the or or. Because I, I can see two ways to look at it. Like I always think of when I think of FedEx, I always think of Tom Hanks before he crashed on the island. Sure, you know he's over in <laughs> Moscow and he's like, "Look, time is money," and he, they wanted to get it right. Now, um, you know, a business that wants to be on the up and up could actually look at what you're doing as helping them uncover their inefficiencies, free, right? Kind of free of charge. Yeah. No. I mean, so the. I mean, we don't really view ourselves as adversarial with the carriers. I mean, you know, really what we're doing is helping their customers get more efficient. Now, you could argue that, you know, so we've talked about the audit. I mean, the other two pieces of our of our uh, platform are the analytics side of it, where we're really focused on helping our customers with our operating efficiency. And the third part is the the contract engineering, where we are able to benchmark any customer against the other 3000 customers and say, you know, a, a, a shipper that looks like you uh, should be paying this for these shipments. So understand their rates. Yeah. And we're, so we're helping them optimize their, their contract. So, you know, I don't, I don't view it through the lens of adversarial to the, to the carriers. I view it as supporting our customers in saving money and becoming efficient in their in their parcel spend. So and there's just not a lot of uh, tools out there to, to help shippers do that. So over the years have, you know, based on all the data you collect, uh, are the carriers getting better? Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, that that percentage of errors that they make is, is stayed very static. They're one of the, you know, it's a duopoly. So, you know, in terms of the contracts, uh, we see the same inefficiency uh, in the, the contracts now that we did then. So, you know, you think about everything else. You think about you go to buy a house. You know exactly what everybody else who's bought a house on that street paid right. for their yep. house. You know, the comps are publicly available. Well, you go to negotiate a, a carrier agreement, you have no idea what like shippers are, are paying and there's only two choices. Right. Yep. So that lack of transparency and that lack of competition uh, makes for a very profitable business for the carriers, uh, but it makes it harder for you as a business owner. And, you know, we view it, you know, if I help a, a $10 million shipper ultimately save 20% on their shipping, they're going to have $2 million to invest in jobs yep. or product development, or God forbid they go and hire more engineers to that's exactly <laughs> what they should do you know what if they if they do want to hire engineers we can actually help with that right matt yeah you're going over there to buy a skyscraper to put them all in right i'm just going to get part of the skyscraper for now matt part of the skyscraper yeah, but you know I, when we were there they were building 12 skyscrapers i wish they'd hurry them and finish them because we need space i know business is growing fast trying to help other businesses find developers are just not enough of them you know I'm, I'm not, I tell people I write checks, not code. So, <laughs> so I know how you feel on that one. Um, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. So, all right. As you went, as you built Bearship, and this is clearly a big business that does a lot of stuff for a lot of people. What, what were your roadblocks? What were the things that like, what did you, what did you run into face first that you had no idea would be there? Well, I didn't know big data was a thing. So, you know, you go past that first seven years and, uh, you know, when we really had gotten the audit scalable and uh, predictable and we started thinking, okay, we started talking uh, within Bearship about, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up? And the, the, the big things that were, I went back to, you know, I drew on my own experience from the ticketing business and, hey, you know, I knew I was inefficient, but I didn't know where those inefficiencies lay. And I knew my contract wasn't good, but I didn't know how to get to good. And it was, how do we take all of this data we're sitting on top of and make sense of it in a way that we can package it into a product and 
and provide it to our customers. So that was how'd you do that? So I got really lucky and luck is thematic throughout my life, you know, in terms of the timing, you know, I, I attribute a lot of our success to luck, you know, I, I don't believe in luck. I don't, I don't, I'm not buying it. I'm just saying, cause you were doing it. You were preparation and opportunity, man. It's an intersection. I hear you. And sometimes it feels like you catch a break, but you were, you were doing it. You were prepared to handle the opportunity. Everything you've been talking about has been like, Hey, I'm looking for opportunity. I'm going to respond to it. Now, well, like, I, I, I think it's like, I, and I get the luck part, but I, I'm sure you worked your ass off. People said to me, they're like, oh, you've done all right for yourself. You're really lucky. I did not feel lucky when I worked my 93rd hour last week. I felt lucky working the 93rd hour last week because I got to, to do something that, that, that I you like. Yeah. So, gotcha on that and one. Matt, would you, would you say that there was an element of luck to your success? I think it was more perseverance. Well, it's perseverance. I mean, my company should have failed for so many reasons, from problems with a business partner, you know, industry goes to hell and bankruptcy to we never raised any capital. I mean, luck, I mean, played maybe a little bit of part of it, being there in the right place, the right time, different things, a lot of perseverance. I mean, a lot of just pushing through it and not accepting failure. Yeah. We are not going, like, I got into a legal battle with a business partner. And we, and for a while we sat around for months going, what the hell just happened? What are we going to do? What's our future? We got like a court injunction against us and the whole time I'm just writing code. I'm like, fuck this. Let's keep writing code. We're going to keep writing code. We're going to figure it out. And we did, we figured it out. Yeah, we got past so, it. So that part wasn't luck, but I mean, the, the, the idea of the timing of having the idea and, and you know, what was luck? Idea. I'll tell you what was luck. I was selling computers at Sears. I decided to skip lunch. Car dealer came in and bought a computer. I will buy that. That was luck. I will buy the, that. That, was that sounds a little more like it. I skipped yeah. lunch because it was Saturday and we were selling shit and I was selling shit. That was my job. Isn't it weird how you can look back and just think, man, that was you luck. know, like if I went to lunch that day or if I did this, like if I didn't try to buy fish tickets. You know what? Day. I was working hard. I, I, I was working I, yeah. that 93rd hour. Yeah. And I'm not downplaying the part that hard work goes into it. And, you know, everybody at this table and probably a lot of the people listening, whether they've whether they've started their business or thinking about starting their business, they're working hard, but there is a, there, there are, and you said it, there are moments in your life where, where that opportunity presents itself, where that problem presents itself and you view it as an opportunity and, you know, and certainly timing, you know, timing is luck. I mean, 2008, 2009, you said those were great years for your they business. Were great. Yeah. How many businesses, you know, of the millions of small businesses can say, that were in existence in 2008 and 2009, look back at that as a fortuitous time in American hey, history. If you, if you, I, I did. The end is, I was working in the music industry. I was working for Roland. Um, I was basically selling pianos. And so that, that whole industry collapsed. I, and, I, and you know what? That pushed me out of it. And that's when I went back to school. You know, like yeah, you said, but, like the like the ticket thing was a surprise for me. I was never planning on doing that, especially for eight years. But anytime there are bad events like that, there is somebody who makes money on the other side. Sure. Like if you, if your specialty was handling mortgage foreclosures and cleaning out houses that people walked away from, you were killing it. Your business yeah. scale. Right. My neighbor lives across the street from right now. He sells stuff to FEMA. He sits and waits for a hurricane. Oh man. That's what his business does. When, when FEMA comes in and says, I need millions of pounds of food and water and supplies, he provides it. Yeah, he just sits around and waits. Is he just sitting on that? I don't know. That's I have weird. no idea. I'm going to have to ask him oh, next man. episode. Maybe we're going to do the disaster. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But the point is there, there, you know, in a lot of those cases, there is somebody that makes money on the other side. If we're going to record that episode, I'm going to sit on it until there's a natural disaster. Okay. And then, yeah. So that probably won't be long. Bearship obviously was, would you say in a lot of ways, it was born out of your previous business in a lot of senses eclipsed it, right? I mean, it has yeah. turned into a giant business. Yeah. That, that came out of an idea in your own problem from one of your other businesses. And it's not the only time you've done this. No, I mean, it's thematic. <laughs> it's thematic in my, uh, in my life. So, uh, we, we, before we got off on that tangent about luck, uh, I was going to tell you how we solved that problem. And I was lucky enough to get introduced to the guy who was running data for the FBI in the Midwest and was talking to him about this problem. And he said, well, 
you, you just need to apply some data science to it. And I said, okay, what's that? Data what? Right. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, well, you know, we're going to need to put that data into a Hadoop cluster and flatten it out. And I said, okay, what's that? So anyway, he was looking to get out of the, the, his public service life and into the private sector. And I uh, tricked him into coming to work for me and, and uh, there's he, a lot of trickery in this episode. You got tricked into having children. You tricked an FBI agent. <laughs> I tricked You're people into God. buying bags of apples back yeah. in. You tricked Watson into working for you at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, what are you going to do? That was just, so, that, that was luck. So it, it was <laughs> luck that, that Matt Watson ended up applying for a job or got recruited to, to ticket technology. You know, the, in the end, you talk about, uh, you know, I, I don't know who they are, but you know, <laughs> that people that are serial entrepreneurs, I actually don't really like that word. Like I'm well, kind of like Lara Holt said, I'm a guy looking for something to do and Just looking to solve problems. I love business. And you know, like, like you said, I, I tell people all the time, I don't have a job. I have a hobby. You know, I, ever since I decided that I haven't worked a day and, and I guess I am lucky when I get to do that. I, I do what I love, but I think, you know, that using the word thematic, you know, people find repeat successes over and over again because they under it's the people that understand, you know, your success has to be paid in advance. You're going to have to work hard. There's nothing that's really easy. Like oh, people say, oh, look at this guy. Everybody. If you didn't, if you weren't born into that money, you probably worked your ass off for it along the way. Now it's rewarded in different amounts and that pile is a little higher for some, but, um, you know, it, it, it's still about like Matt, you said it's about perseverance. Yeah. You've got to keep keeping on and it's so easy to quit. You got to know when to stop too though. Right. Well, the, and, and, but, uh, you know, to, to kind of finish my point that I feel that the difference between good and great is really small. Like the people that are good at best are the ones that don't get up when things are tough, they're like, I'll settle for just failing and, oh, well, I'm comfortable here. I'm the fat dog that won't hunt or all these different things. And for me, I just like, you said something in the beginning of this, um, that I, that I think is, is profound. And I, and I'm a big believer in this. It's that you can't, you don't start the business wanting the money. You have to be great at something. The money's a byproduct of being Scoreboard. really, really good at what I, you do. I for me, it was always about making the customer happy and solving the problem. And, and when I worked for you, that was what always, that was one of the number one things I learned is I love talking to our customers and like, Matt, we really need the software to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, all right, I go do it. I love it when you do that. Andrew. And then that was Matt coding for those yeah, of you that's, yes, listening at yes, home. Yes. And then we would ship them the update, you know, a day or two later, right? Thank the you customer for clarifying that, by the way. And, um, I always, I just love that part. Like being able to talk to the customer, solve their problem, ship them a new version like that. That was an adrenaline rush. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to find joy. I mean, because there, there is so much hard work and you do have to be willing to, to, I guess you guys said, I can say, say you got to be willing to work your ass off, right? (laughs) That's a first, that's the first guest we've had that asked if they could swear. Damn it. Oh, I did it again. Okay. You got to be willing to work your ass off and, and then, yeah, you have to, you have to have a lens for the pain that, that uh, a problem is for a customer and you got to be passionate. You got to be passionate about solving that, that problem. I think another thing you said too, is you mentioned your wife having that kind of, she was never too excited. She was never too let down. Like, I mean, you know, marriage is challenging at times, but I think that if you're in it and you have someone that's supporting you and kind of gets it and like understands like not every day, my wife worked at my ticket business for seven years. I apologize to her a lot for that. Sure. Um, And thank her too. Like there was a lot of hard work, but you know, like you said, that, that supportiveness of knowing like, Hey, um, I get it. You're going to, you need to do this, 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 and this. Um, I'll take care of all these other things. And that, and that's, that's important. I mean, would you agree? Like, I think you're in a similar situation now. And my wife's always been a big supporter. Yeah. I mean, she's, I don't think she's ever a hundred percent understood what I do. Right. Right. And, uh, it's always interesting to take her with me to work scenarios and see me as like a different person. Like, Oh, that's my husband. He's a CEO up CEO up on stage talking to all his employees. Like that's a whole different world. Like she, you know, I'm a different person at home as, as a dad. Right. Well, so, it's a different part, right? You play a different part, yeah. And you've got your 
your work part and you've got your your uh, husband part, you got your father part yeah. of your of your life. But it's easy yeah. to get them all blended up too, though. Like I spend a lot of time trying to separate some of that. Yeah. It's oh, you, and and that is that's and that's critical. Uh, you know, when, when you're putting in those 90 hour weeks, the ability to and you've got three kids who don't care. They no. don't care about your problem at work. They care about having a, a dad who's present in there. And yeah, uh, that's and I, a my kids part. care about who can scream louder. I fell at that a lot. Yeah. The screaming louder part? Or? No, the oh, he's really my kids loud. are running around and I'm on my computer. Yeah. Not paying attention. Well, to them. you know, I mean, that's you, you say you fail, but, you know, you're. You're, you're giving them enough time. It's still TBD. Yeah, your your oldest is nine. You haven't failed yet. I think you're doing all right. But you know that going back to the the wife part, you also learn. You know, they call a marriage a partnership for a reason. I mean, and so I've got a partner in my business in my in my wife, but she runs everything. She does everything outside of the business. So she lets me just focus on the the work and the the part that's going to provide for our, our life. So finding that balance with your partners and making them a true partner is, is critical as well. I need my wife to buy into that a little more. Maybe. I don't want to talk about wives anymore. They, <laughs> might, they, might, they might listen to this. They might listen to this. So, you know, I think we can kind of wind this down by asking like, so what's the future with Bearership? Like, what do you have in mind? Like, is that, you know, is it, is this, are you in a lifestyle business at this point? Like, is this what you do for the next 20 years? Or like, do you like just, because you, know, you found success with it. And I think that we spend a lot of time on Startup Hustle talking about the good, the bad, the ugly. Like, and sometimes we don't talk about what happens when things go right. So what's your, what's your take on that? And so, also, it, Matt fired me at the beginning of the show, so I might need a job. Yeah, that's cool. He's um, unemployable. So, yeah, I mean... We, we absolutely have openings and certainly your, <laughs> your skill set and emancipating, oh, emancipating people from having to work with Matt is one of my specialties. I love so it. That's a, that's a solution. What we'll do is we'll get Matt started on something new and then we'll sneak out the back. It's, I'm going to leave him for a few days to do the stuff I do at full scale. And then I think he's going to want to hire me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know, we know for a fact that he's got that, that ADD thing. The entrepreneurial Wait, ADD. I was sorry. I was looking squirrel. I was looking. I was looking at shiny <laughs> things. I'm sorry. So anyway, where am I? Where are we going? So I mean, I wake up. Uh, I wake up every single morning, excited about the opportunities that Vership has, and I still think that there's a lot more for us to accomplish. So, you know, you, you ask where is it going? I've never started a business with the idea that there was an exit. Interesting. So I. I I've had, I've exited businesses. I mean, you know, I wasn't looking to exit ticket technology, but eBay wanted that business. So, yeah. so, uh, the future is we're going to continue to help our customers. We're going to be passionate about, uh, solving their problems and identifying problems that they, for them that they don't realize that they have. It's one of the problems with efficiency is when you're inefficient, you don't recognize it. And, you know, that's, that's part of our, our mission. So we're going to, we're going to keep going and we just crossed a hundred employees. I've got uh, some really amazing people that I get to work with every day that inspire me. And, and, uh, and I'm excited about that. And I've got a wife and three daughters at home and uh, they're, they're counting on dinner on the table tonight. So. And all your employees are they in Kansas city? Uh, yeah, we've got, one remote sales guy who's just great at sales, and I, uh, in a moment of weakness, said he could keep working for us when he moved to Nashville. Uh, we've got one uh, in Chicago, and we actually have some folks that uh, some do that do some R and D on our the manual side of our audit in the Philippines. So I'll have oh, you really? stop in and check in on them while you're over there. Yeah, I was planning on that. Cool. Yeah, bill me. I, I already have. I did it just a few seconds ago, and um, I'm using Verish. I'm actually using Veriship to make sure the invoice gets there on time. And if I'm going to use Veriship to audit that invoice. Yeah, I'm, I'm using it for a lot of stuff already. Um, if your business ships a lot of stuff, or you're thinking about doing things related to shipment, remember saving money is making money. You can check out Veriship. V-E-R-I ship dot com. Um, I like it. 
Thanks for the shameless plug. No, it's good. There's no, there's no shame in my game. I, hey, Russ, I really enjoyed this. I thought this was great. I, I, there's nothing more pleasurable on Startup Hustle than getting people in here that have been down the path and have something to say about it. You agree, Matt? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I definitely learned a lot from working from Russ many years ago. And so always somebody I looked up to as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think that's cool. I think we're going to have you back. Yeah, I, no. We didn't have enough time today. It's all this, good. this is really cool what you guys are doing. And I'm sure that you're inspiring some people to, to, to go chase their, their dreams. And we have a guy in Russia who says he, and by the way, what's up, man? Um, he says he listens to the show. He's learning how to speak English. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we've got a lot of really interesting people. And you know what, guys, if you want to talk about your hustle, uh, join us on our Facebook at the Startup Hustle Facebook chat. Um, we've had some interesting people in there. Uh, we had a guy who has a chicken hustle. What's up, man? We're still talking about you. <laughs> um, What's a poultry hustle look like? He just he's got something going on. Well, you can Russ, I'd like to invite you to come to the Startup Hustle uh, Facebook chat and check it out because he posted a video. He uh, started raising chickens in a, in a kind of a free range, organic kind of way. He's an IT developer, That's and awesome. uh, it's got it going on. And and you know he posted that in there. It's like you know six a.m. and you know he's out there with the chickens and talking to us about what we do and it made me realize i'm like man i wish more people would put their hustle on here so it's pretty cool well i gotta i gotta go i have more places to stop in the philippines i gotta stop and check on russ's people i gotta yeah. get a floor of a skyscraper i gotta yeah. hire some more people and i gotta get ready to help keep help keeping businesses find the it help they need all right see you guys next Thanks, time everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.